The biggest marketing lesson I will share with you tonight is seven words. People like us do things like this. And that is what the definition of culture is. The research shows that you're more likely to believe information, the exact same information, if it's presented to you from an in-group member, from a party member or a party leader. Seth Godin says, people like us do things like this. And ooh, this, once you hear this episode, you are never going to look at your decisions or your social groups the same. Did you know that every decision you make is largely influenced by the social groups where you identify? And I know you may push back on that and think, oh, no, I'm fully there. I'm an individual. I make my own decisions. But I want you to, I want to challenge you for a second and and you'll see why as we unfold this episode in this conversation, but think of the monikers you might personally call yourself, wife, dad, entrepreneur, employee, boss, Republican, crossfitter, horror movie lover, doctor, Christmas nut, Yankees fan, cosplayer, Pinterest mom, immigrant, Christian, that weird kid from down the street, (laughs) queer, anti-vaxxer, Texan, cigar aficionado. You can insert whatever name that might fit you in the broadest spectrum. But I want you to take some of those things that you think about and kind of suspend it in your mind. And let's, let's continue this conversation. And what I learned is that every single one of these labels has a social construct, a construct, a hidden group of rules that help inform how you dress, how you show up, what you believe, who you hang out with, who you like, and who you hate, and really defines a culture. And you can see this in real life when you think about the person you show up to at work is has a different kind of coding and a different kind of code of ethics or code, not code of ethics, but like rules and ways that you show up is going to be different from the mom you are at home. So I wanted to see how deep our social identities went, and especially in the political landscape that has literally divided our families, divided our communities, it's divided our country in the U.S. So is there hope for us? So I recently discovered Dr. Jay Van Bavel. He is the co-author of the newly released Power of Us book. He is a professor at NYU, He's a columnist for Science Magazine who has dedicated his life's work to researching social identities and what it means to us individually and to society. This is such an enlightening episode. Now, if you want to hear more personal takes on it, make sure you receive my emails by signing up at allisonhair.com. Here's my chat with Dr. Jay Van Babel. You have dedicated your studies and your practice to social identity. What is social identity? How do you define it? Well, most of us are aware that we have an individual identity. You know, uh, you know who you are. We kind of think of ourselves like heroes in a book. You know, and as you go through change in the book, it's like mm. a new chapter for you. Um, but we're all, what we're often not aware of, at least we're not thinking about most of the time, is a huge part of our identity are our social identities. And so these are our connections to other people or groups, something that's bigger than us. And so this could be like your identity. For me, I have an identity as a father, as a professor, um, as a son, as a Canadian. 
all of these things come to mind and activate different understandings of the world. So when I'm at work, I might be thinking about myself as a professor and thinking about like, how do I get through the day? How am I successful at this? Who are my people I can trust? You know, my in-group in that environment. Um, but when I have to go pick up my kids from school, um, my acti- activate, act, uh, when I have to go pick up my kids from school, uh, uh, when I have to go pick up my kids from school, it activates my identity as a father. And when I'm a father, all I'm thinking about is like, you know, how to entertain my kids, how to get them home, uh, what they want for dinner. And they really don't care at all about my work. And I'm not even thinking about my work or my other identities at all. Um, so, so it's like a code of conduct. We shift back and forth. Yeah, yeah it's sorry? like a code of conduct that is yeah. there. And so one of the things I was thinking about is Seth Godin always talks about people like us do things like this. You know, um, and and almost like code switching is is how I imagine that um, you're describing this. And one of the things, so you just released um, a book called The Power of Us, and I'm I'm about halfway through it. it. I can't put it down. Like it is so gripping. It's so fascinating. And what is so poignant, and I imagine you're probably asked a lot about this, is political partisanship and mm-hmm. the political affiliation. And you had you had written in it when social. I'll quote. Can I quote it? <laughs> of course, you can quote quote away. <laughs> All right. When social identities are at stake, the power of factual info is diluted, especially when the info comes from the other side. This is a really poignant time to talk about that. Is there any hope for us? <laughs> <laughs> um, th- there's always hope. I mean, I'm an optimist. Um, so I'll say maybe a few things. One is that we, although we contain multitudes, we have lots of identities in America. One of the big ones, and it's getting bigger and bigger for most of us is our political identity, you know, which Mm. party or leader we align with. And you can see this in people's social media bios. They're more and more likely over the last few years to mention a political identity than another type of identity. And so that means it's dominating the way they think about the world, uh, what news they tune into and read, um, who they trust and what they believe. And so the research shows that you're more likely to believe information, the exact same information, if it's presented to you from an in-group member, from a party member or party leader, and you're more likely to distrust it or dismiss it um, if, or just argue against it if it's from somebody from the other side. And so that means, you know, we talk a lot about echo chambers online, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is done by people uh, psychologically, that they just discredit information, even if they're exposed to it. Um, from somebody they don't trust. So when you're thinking about groups that you belong to, are there how do our how do our opinions form, and are we in control of any of it? Because it seems like so much of it is. It, um, one thing I've heard a lot is social death can sometimes be more scary or greater than physical death. And the need to belong, the need to be associated with whatever group it is, whatever affiliation, how is that impacting our society? And what do we do about it? You, you've done amazing studies on this, but and they, they're blowing my mind. Yeah, well, I, I th- the way I think of it is that we have these very old brains that are designed to uh, help us fit in and cooperate. That's mm-hmm. our evolutionary advantage compared to every other species. You know, we can't fly. We don't have poison. um, We don't run very fast. So we would get picked off pretty quickly if we didn't work together. And so what that means is uh, our ancestors are the ones who managed to fit in. And and people who didn't fit in died, and they didn't pass on their genes. And so Mm. the, the ancestors of those people are simply not with us. 
And so groups use this as a tool all the time to regulate norms. You know, we, we, in traditional communities, it's called shunning. You know, if you go to like an Amish community and you don't do the right thing, they shun you and it's devastating for people. Um, but at our workplace or in our day to day, uh, what the research has found is simply being told that no one wants to work with you can drop your IQ by about 15 points. What? Which is, yeah. How does that work? It's because it's so distressing. It's all you can think about. You can't think about the, the problems that you're facing in front of you, whether they're math problems or other problems at work. And so if you're creating an environment where people constantly are going through this experience of feeling excluded or ostracized or, right. or shamed or teased, um, their capacity to think, their fundamental capacity just to like do simple uh, equations in their head or solve problems is dramatically diminished. And so it's, it's fundamental to think about how you create an environment that, that scratches that itch that gives people a sense of belonging and inclusion. So how do you, you know, I've been in situations, I'm sure people listening have been in situations where you go in and you're like, am I, do people not like me? And does everybody know? And all of a sudden it becomes all consuming. How much of that is, you know, you're a psychologist. I wonder how much of it is in our heads or is in intuitively based picking up cues. I don't, I don't know how it even comes when there, there isn't something obvious. You know what I mean? But you just sense that you don't belong. Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of both. So a lot of it's in our heads. So we're hypersensitive to detect cues of belonging or exclusion because they're so evolutionarily important to us. Mm-hmm. We're always on the lookout for them. Um, so that means we're picking up all kinds of little signals. So this means something like if you are, for example, um, you know, at a bar trying to meet somebody new, trying to you know get a new relationship, you're looking at like, are they leaning in when they talk to you? Are they making eye contact? Mm-hmm. Or are they like closing their arms and leaning away? And we might not be even be aware that we're sending out these signals to people. Uh, but what research has done is, for example, it looks at interracial interactions. And people who have subtle biases are sending off these behavioral signals all the time. And they might not even be aware that they're doing it because they're focused on what they're saying. And they, they might not be saying anything you know, unfair or discriminatory, but their body is sending off a signal that's just like, I'm uncomfortable with you or I'm so not wild. taking you seriously. And the person on the other end is feeling that and they might not even be able to put their finger on it. They're just like, is this person not vibing with me or is, am I, did I do something? And they don't quite know, but they are, are feeling it. And then if you show that video to somebody like an unbiased person, a third party, they can see the dynamics and, and they can be measured and studied in the lab. That is so wild that you do that. And you, you've done all of these studies. One of the things that stood out to me is that political partisanship has a biological... Is, is it true that there's a biological predisposition to be one way or the other? Yeah. So we often think like, you know, the, the pinnacle of American politics in most countries is the debates, you know, between the candidates yes. to see who has the better ideas. And we think we're watching a debate to learn who has the better ideas. But what most of the research shows is those debate debates don't really convince almost anyone. Well, part of the reason is people are super committed to these parties because of their identity. But the other part of the story is that we're biologically predisposed to like a certain party or style of leader. So if you take identical twins raised in the same household, they're far more likely to have the same politics than non-identical twins also raised in the exact same household. And so the reason is because they're genetic clones. They share 100% of their, wow. their genes. And so... They're predisposed to like, you know, certain types of, of styles of leadership, certain types of people, certain types of policies. 
And uh, often we're not aware of how much our biology is guiding us towards these preferences. We often think, I know I read the newspaper and I thought through this. I did my own research and I figured out who I liked. But a lot of it is just predispositions. So how much of, of critical thinking plays into it or knowledge or data um, not as much as we would like to think. Um, <laughs> we, we think we're, we're using data, but most of us have these other things kind of going on below our awareness that are nudging and guiding us to like certain people and candidates and act in certain ways that we're not even aware of. So are we present at all with this? It, it just seems like there's so, there's so much less autonomy in our own thought than, than we would have thought. And I guess as, as people, especially Americans and people who, who value individualism, where does that all play out? Um, so I, I do, in, in the book, we try to give people the tools to understand this so that they do have control and they're not just, you know, mm -hmm. constantly being influenced by other people in ways that they don't appreciate or don't understand and that they have more agency to choose which groups they want to belong to um, and that they can avoid being, you know, manipulated. But also that if they want to encourage or nudge other people um, to see the world a different way, that they at least understand how to do that, which is really critical for leaders mm -hmm. if you're trying to create like a healthy environment or or cultivate a really um, exciting, dynamic, successful culture. You have to be thinking about this. Um, in fact, when we talk in our chapter about leadership, we talk about two key components of leadership. One is like mentoring, you know, finding ways to meet people, build them, build up their skills, support them as individuals. But a second piece that often gets ignored is creating a sense of us, creating a shared identity, creating mm -hmm. symbols, a narrative about where you're all going and what you all represent. And um, great leaders, transformative leaders have done that throughout history. They kind of intuitively understand this. But what we try to do is give people the tools to understand how it works, what type of language is effective at this um, so that they can bring it to the workplace or whether they coach their you know, daughter's soccer team or their CEO, that they have the tools to understand and, and use this for effective change. I thought what was interesting is your studies on language and the use of linguistics specifically around social media that um, really emotionally charged words like trust, victim, those things were shared so much more than, than lesser charged words and how powerful that is. And I wonder about the art of manipulation or even cult leadership, which, um, which I have my own, <laughs> my own thoughts about as specifically around the political world, but it is everywhere. Where is the line? Uh, where is the line there? Yeah, I mean, so so some of the tools of, of effective leadership and creating a sense of common identity can be used for good or bad. Mm. Um, and then we're all a little bit sucked into it, right? Because 4 billion people are now on social media. Um, and the average social media user, I saw this statistic, scrolls through 300 feet of their newsfeed each day. So that means if you have like a, a iPhone like I do that's six inches tall, that means you've swiped down 600 times in a day. Wow. That's the height of the Statue of Liberty, by the way. They, and so certain things are going to pop out at you and grab your attention. And, and then you're more likely to click them, engage with them, share them. And so everybody's in this fight for your attention. That's why they call it the attention economy. Um, and what we find is that moral emotional language, for every time you use a word that's moral emotional, it gets retweeted or shared about 15 to 20 percent more frequently. And if you load a bunch of those into your messages, you can really amp up whether or not your messages go viral. Um, but what we also find, and this is where it kind of gets a little bit culty, is you might be doing that and you're getting all this positive feedback from every time you log in, you see your notifications are lighting up, your messages are getting spread, people are liking it. Um, but if you look at the social networks of who shares it, mm. it's only people who think like you. 
you start to alienate people who are different than you if you use that language. So normally when we talk about, let's say, politics, you can talk about it around, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up. You can talk about the Thanksgiving dinner with your family. Um, and if you start to like go on a bit of a rant, people start rolling their eyes, they excuse themselves mm-hmm. from dinner. Um, yeah. you, get the, you get these like subtle signals that like you're losing your, a lot of the audience, you're alienating people. Online, you might not be seeing it because a lot of the structures are to, to like and share. Um, a lot of times, unless people are really upset and post a comment, you just don't see the things that would be equivalent of like an eye roll. Can you, it's so fascinating to me. And, and on, on the topic of cults, you had talked about the Seventh-day Adventist um, experiment that you did. Would you mind sharing that? Yeah, so this this was people's actually... Commitment, people's <laughs> commitment to their, their groupthink is, is really astounding. Yeah, so this is where groups can go bad. And we have a, a chapter on cults, uh, not just with real world cults like the Seventh-day Adventists, um, but with, um, you know, organizations like Enron and Bethlehem Steel, how they had cult-like dynamics. But what happens in these cults, and there's a couple great studies we talk about in our chapter on this, um, they're doomsday cults. And so that means they're predicting, you know, a very specific day and time where the world is going to end. You know, like at a midnight. recipe for failure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a recipe for the cult to be failing. Most of us know this is going to be foolish and it gets in the news and we laugh at it. Well, there were one of the couple of the studies, one of the psychologists actually joined and pretended to be cult members to be in the room at midnight to see what happened when the cult prophecy failed. And another one, it was economists who tried to pay people to take money, you know, after the prophecy. They were going to give them hundreds of dollars in, in a few weeks or they'd give them five dollars now. And they were trying to say, are these cult members serious? Like, if they really think the world's going to end, they'll take $5 now. If they don't think the world's going to end, they'll say, well, just, I'll come back in two weeks and get several hundred dollars from you. Um, and any rational you know, investor would take that option. But almost every single cult member in that study took $5 now rather than a couple hundred dollars a couple weeks from now. Um, and people who are, who are in a similar religion but were not predicting the end of the world took the hundred dollars, you know, a couple weeks later. So this wasn't a matter of just being a religious type of person or something. This is really about the specific belief about the world ending. And, and of course, in the one cult where the psychologists were in the room when the world ended, it are supposed to end, it didn't end. And so what happens in that moment is these members of this cult are so committed to this belief that they're having like this immense cognitive dissonance in their brain about like, do I admit that this cult is actually a, a lie, a fraud, and I pick up my suitcase and leave, go back to my old life? Um, or is there a way for me to rationalize this mm. and, that lets me stick in the group that I really care about? And and the leader at that point at 3 a.m., you know, three hours after the prophecy failed, came out and said, your beliefs are so powerful and you're so committed that you've saved the world. And so the, it allowed these uh-huh. cult letter members to feel like they were part of something special that made a big difference. And it allowed them to rationalize the fact that the prophecy was wrong. And when you're in a cult, you you care so much about... Uh, the people who who stuck with the cult the longest were those who cared the most about the cult, but also people who had social support. So this is where a cult kind of goes bad is if a lot of other people are reinforcing this false belief, it's easy for you to cling to it. But if you're just on your own and something's wrong, you'll update your thinking. It's really the social reinforcements that, that's critical to maintaining false beliefs and conspiracies. Wow. Dr. J, when QAnon comes out, is that like an amusement park for you? <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like a perfect gay study. It's a funny thing about QAnon because three years ago I was starting to study this uh, conspiracy theories and I would go talk into um, a university audience, you know, full of really smart professors and PhD students. And I'd ask them, how many people have heard of Me Too? And every hand in the room goes up. Everybody's heard about Me Too. It's revolutionized every industry. And then I'd say, how many people know about QAnon? And maybe like one hand would go up out of 40 mm-hmm. people. 
and no one had heard about it. And then I would tell them the, the, statistics, the statistics on this were that just as many people were posting about QAnon with the hashtag QAnon on social media as were posting with the hashtag MeToo. And, and the whole MeToo movement started as a hashtag, right? Like this is where people go to share these stories to change things. Um, no one was, t- even though just as many people are posting about QAnon, no one was really aware of it, you know, outside the that? little bubble that it was in. Yeah. Yeah. Why is that? Um, well, it's partly because, at least in, in science a little bit, we're in a bubble. We're not hanging around conspiracy theorists. But to many people, these groups have infiltrated a lot of like mothers groups because they're concerned about pedophilia. Um, I've seen these people in my neighborhood, you know, mm. store owners who put this stuff up on their store. Um, and they had a lot of false prophecies over and over again that were falsified. And, and a lot of people continued to believe in them. And so it kind of goes to show you that, you know, even with these modern groups, and this isn't just speculation from these older studies, these older cults, you can see the same thing with prophecies and, and conspiracy theory movements now is that, you know, the flat earthers, how many times has that been proven wrong? <laughs> There's still a group of people who are flat earthers out there and deeply committed to it. Deeply committed to it. I don't know why they make me laugh. Um, oh. <laughs> they're pretty harmless. That's they're, like a conspiracy theory. I think theory that's where... true. I think that's yeah. true. I think it's because they're harmless. They make me laugh. Yeah. I could, I could, uh, I don't know that I could talk to a flat earther, but I love learning about it. <laughs> I'm curious about stereotypes. So stereotyping is something that is an easy shortcut for us to, con- you know, quickly categorize something and be able to to kind of move on. With the amount of information that we have, is stereotyping ever helpful or is it only hurtful? How does this apply in in, uh, in your studies and in your world? Yeah, so stereotypes are, are kind of a necessary and natural part of the human mind. So it's useful to know that Canadians tend to speak English or maybe French if you're going to travel to Canada. If you're mm-hmm. going to travel to Germany, it's used to know that Germans speak German. So you might want to like catch up on your German if you meet somebody in a store to use the words you've learned. So the, those types of stereotypes are good. Um, what Where stereotypes go wrong is um, when we you know, attribute something really nasty to a group of people and then you interact with them um, and the person you're interacting with looks nothing like that or acts nothing like that. Um, and this also happens, it turns out, in the political domain. So as, as bad as the, the political domain has gone in the U.S. with polarization, um, there, it turns out that people still overestimate how badly polarized other people are. So if a Republican is meeting a Democrat, they have these exaggerated stereotypes about what that person looks like and thinks and, and does and believes about them. And it turns out a lot of those are, are very wrong. Um, and same with Democrats. Their stereotypes of the average Republican tend to be very wrong. And so you have these kind of like mm. cartoons or caricatures, you know, mm-hmm. like if you are ever in a tourist area of a big city, they always have like the little cartoonists who draw these like exaggerated yeah. pictures of your face, um, highlighting all kind of like your most prominent characteristics. That's very much like what's in your mind's eye for stereotypes about a lot of group. It's like these exaggerated pictures that aren't true. And if you think that this other group of people is really demonic um, because of the caricature you have in your head, then you won't interact with them. And, and this is where negative stereotypes are really bad. Mm-hmm. If you never interact with somebody who's a part of another group that you don't like, um, whether it's an ethnic, racial, religious group, you don't interact with them because you think it will go badly. You don't have a chance to ever falsify or prove your stereotypes wrong. Whereas, let's say I have a positive stereotype about a group, I'll interact with them and then I can learn, well, maybe that's untrue. Maybe it's over, overly mm-hmm. generous. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's a negative stereotype, it's very hard to falsify because you avoid people like that. And so you can't really ever update your learning. But I think that in the political realm, especially, it's been used as a a very intentional tactic to be able to to stereotype or use words like radical, use words like 
you know, really strong language, ultra conservative, radical conservative, radical left, yeah. whatever it is. Um, and then all of a sudden it, it is so much easier to spread. It's a very convenient tool, but really dangerous to the human psyche and also our ability to connect with each other. So I'm curious about how do we, is there a way to reconnect and do it in a healthy way? Yeah, what, so this is where there's really interesting research. One of my, you know, the most impressive set of studies I've seen on this um, finds that if you shatter the stereotype, you say this group of people actually doesn't hate you nearly as much as you think, um, then you're more willing to be open-minded and engage with them. And so you can literally just give accurate information about what that group believes. And since that accurate information will challenge my stereotype, it, it can open my mind. And then you're willing to at least start a conversation. And you might find you have common ground. You can work together on some things. And even though you might disagree on others, um, being able to find some ground for cooperation is really critical to get most anything done at work or, or politically or socially. So uh, I think those are the types of things that we need to think more about how to do to kind of grease the conversations between most people. And admittedly, there are people at the extremes. You know, there's those two or three percent of people who are really at the extremes. And you might not want to interact with those people, but you have to understand there's 98% of people in the middle in very, to various degrees of difference, and that they often have some common beliefs with you or common ground for, for interaction. And so, you know, it's like if you ever go to a networking event at a conference, you know, it's the pandemic, but we're kind of coming out of it. One of the first things you do if you meet a new person is to try to find some shared identity. You know, a place you both used to work, a friend you both have in common, you know, a place you both have lived or traveled to, you're trying to find that really quick so that you can uh, find a bond and some shared experience to build a relationship on. And so that's just like a fundamental part of human nature. We're looking for ways to connect. Um, and a lot of times media and especially social media, these companies profit by fostering division because it makes them money and increases engagement, but it doesn't actually like foster the outcomes we care about in society. Mm. What um, of the studies that you had done in preparation for Power of Us, and it, it sounds like this is kind of your work anyway, your life's work, what surprised you the most? Yeah, I, I think this was the research I did for my PhD dissertation. And at the time, we were the whole field was really obsessed with, the, with this idea that there's this part of like bias or stereotypes or racism that's automatic. Mm. And it just kind of you interact with somebody who's different than you and it automatically activates all these terrible things in your mind about them. And even if you're not trying to do it, it just is like a reflex. Like when the, you go to the doctor and they tap your knee and your leg kicks out, mm -hmm. that your mind starts, gets all these things triggered. And I brought people into the lab in many, many, many studies and I would put them in mixed race teams. So half their team would be black and half would be white, for example. Um, and what I found over and over again is the moment people are part of a team, and even if it's, you know, totally mixed in terms of race, they start feeling positive towards everybody who's part of their team. They start saying, I want, I'd be more interested in being friends with these people. doesn't matter what their race is. They start uh, remembering these people as individuals and seeing, looking past them just as members of groups, but seeing them as individuals. Um, they, their brain changes. So we put them in the MRI scanner and we can wow. see what's happening kind of below the hood in terms of their brain and their emotional systems and their face processing systems are changing. Um, and so, and then we can see with these implicit or automatic types of attitudes that are often thought to, you know, by many people to be partially unconscious, also changed and became more positive towards anybody who's part of their in-group. And so this is kind of the key idea that I've been following up, you know, for the last 20 years almost, um, is this how flexible we are and we have this capacity to 
find common ground with people, just as we have a capacity to divide up the world. And so a lot of my research is trying to figure out, like, how are people carving up the world in ways that are harmful? And what can we do to nudge them to uh, kind of put the world back together in a way that's more cohesive and cooperative and, and harmonious? That is so cool. <laughs> what an incredible <laughs> uh, vantage point. What, tell us about the stinky clothes experiment. <laughs> I love this. This is so fun. Okay, so this is a way that we carve up the world. So I said that when you're part of a group, when you have an identity, it changes how you think about the world. Um, what I didn't tell you is it affects how you think about the world in all kinds of ways. So it affects how you, uh, you know, we have studies showing it affects your taste. Um, I'm going to tell you about a great study that was done by another lab looking at how it affects your smell. So they did this study where they had somebody wear a stinky shirt and they basically, or sorry, wear a shirt all week long and get it really nice and ripe and stinky by exercising in it, not taking it off. They put it in like a sealed plastic bin. And then they brought research participants into the lab and they had them smell the shirt, um, which sounds like a really terrible study to be in. Yeah. And they told people I either... They paid for that. Yeah, I, I, th- I, I, I don't remember if they paid them. I sadly have to believe that this was a volunteer study. Uh, <laughs> But it, maybe they got paid, but certainly not enough, right, to go and just smell a, a stinky shirt. And they manipulated whether the people thought the shirt was from somebody who is their in-group, a member of their university, or from an out-group, a rival university. And then they had them rate, like, how disgusting the shirt was and all these things. And what happened is when you thought that you were smelling a shirt from an in-group member, it smelled much more uh, aromatically pleasant, you know? Uh, I don't think it smelled quite like perfume, but it smelled much better than when it was an out-group member. At that point, you were retching. It it was disgusting. It was putrid. (laughs) And so the exact same shirt, who people think it's from dramatically changes um, whether or not they like it. And people who have a partner that they love and they're used to doing somebody else's laundry will probably realize this is the same thing. The exact same dirty laundry from your neighbor would probably disgust you. But if it's from a family member, you just do it and it doesn't bug you that much. And so this is part of our, our nature. The way we carve up the world into groups affects not only who we want to cooperate with, but also just like how we experience the world, how we smell it, how we mm-hmm. taste it, how we see it, how we hear it. That is so wild. So I was thinking about, so as I'm reading your book, I keep thinking about that person. We all know this person from high school that refuses to conform with anything. So they might be a contrarian. They might be somebody that uh, they, they just need to be different at whatever case. Did you do any studies with people like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was my, well, yeah. So my, my co-author, Dominic, who helped write the book with me, his research has really looked at dissent. So people who are mm. like comfortable being the devil's advocate. Um, so it's not necessarily cranky people, but it's people who will step up and be cranky. And what, mm-hmm. what he finds is actually very counterintuitive. It goes against what most people expect, which is that the people who are willing to dissent when a group is going bad um, are actually the people who care most about the group. And and that, that sounds so? weird, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. how so? But the reason is because um, disagreeing with the group is really hard. And you're worried about, as we said at the very beginning, always getting kicked out of the group and not belonging. And so the only people who are really going to speak up in a meeting and be the devil's advocate or the dissenter are people who are worried, care so much about the group and are worried about it so much that they'll stick their neck out to try to change it before it goes badly. And if you don't have those people, you get in situations of groupthink and, and conformity that's dangerous. And so um, there are definitely these people who are just like intrinsically cranks. But I would pay a lot of attention if you run a team or a group or an organization to the people who don't normally dissent, but they are doing it now in a meeting. 
And that means that they're doing it only because they probably care a lot about it and they think that something bad is going to happen. Hmm. And so the teams, there's a great study at Google, one of my favorite studies on what predicted team success. And they, you know, Google's great at crunching numbers and they looked at like personality profiles and styles. They looked at leadership structure, whether it was like vertical or horizontal leadership or whether people were friends. They went out for drinks after work or just knew each other at work. None of those things predicted group success. The only single thing that predicted group success was psychological safety, which which is the opposite of what most people think. Psychological safety act it doesn't mean that you can't disagree with people. It means the opposite. It means you can disagree with them and dissent, challenge the status quo, um, say that the leader's idea is bad, um, propose an idea no one's ever heard about before, and you people will value you, and you get to come back tomorrow and be part of the group, and they don't like disinvite you from drinks after or ignore you at lunch. That's what psychological safety means. And so teams that have a culture of psychological safety create a context where dissent is easy, natural, normal, valued, um, and helps a group uh, outcompete any other group. Hmm. That is so cool. And it reminds me of the Enneagram 5. <laughs> I, think it is. I, don't, I don't know if Enneagram is even anywhere near your uh, studies. Um, but I did want to ask you, and, and this might be a personal question, as you you analyzing this data, interviewing these people, running these labs, how does it affect you personally? You know, like a, a lot of the political stuff is really negative. <laughs> you know, is it something that lights you up because you love research or is it something that you need to protect yourself of? This is not, you know, like this, this is so deep in it. How do you kind of guard yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit easier for me to do it because I'm not a member of, uh, I'm not, I can't even vote in the U.S. So I've been I am yeah. not an American citizen. So I have like yeah. a little bit of, I'm like a scientist or an anthropologist in a strange land trying to understand it. Um, so that helps. Um, but I will say it's very nasty. You know, if you go in the public and you talk about this stuff, there are always going to be extremists who come after you and insult you. I was on TV yesterday and mm-hmm. within minutes of the being off TV live, I was getting emails criticizing how I looked and online conspiracy theorists criticizing me. Um, so it's like you have to have like a thicker skin and understand a lot of times it's not personal. Some people are just so deep down the rabbit hole of whatever mm-hmm. weird belief system they have that any reasonable perspective or any scientific evidence that disagrees with them is going to upset them and they're going to think it's wrong and biased. And, and that's part of the mindset of people once they get into a conspiracy theory is if they think everybody is out to get them and the experts are out to manipulate them, mm-hmm. then if you try to present evidence that they're wrong, you just become ev- more evidence of the conspiracy theory in their mind. Mm-hmm. And so you have to understand that some people are going to be, most people are pretty, are reasonable and, and nudgeable and there's ways to reach them if you show respect and you're open-minded and present them with evidence. Um, but there are kind of hardcore people at, 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 you know, in an extreme perspective that are just always going to be hard to reach. They're kind of, that's why I often compare them to the cult members because mm. even if you present evidence that shows the cult is entirely wrong, they're going to double down on it. But I thought what was interesting in in your book and in your research and data was the studies that you did. Again, I think they were on political uh, political sides that, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, if the other side just had this information, everything would be fine. And in your study, the more information, if it was, can you explain it? Because I could, but there's a few different studies we've, we've done on this. So first of all, if you're filtering the world through the lens of your political identity, you're going to be more likely to believe anything that's nasty about the other side, whether mm-hmm. it's true or false. And so that can lead you to believe all kinds of false things. 
I mean, that's true of Democrats and Republicans, we found. Mm -hmm. um, but there are some ways to get around it. So there's this really cool study where they showed people scientific evidence from NASA. And if you were talking to somebody else and trying to understand the data, if you could not tell what identity group they were from, you learned from them and got smarter. Mm. But if you saw that they were a Democrat and you were a Republican or vice versa, you didn't learn as much because you didn't want to listen to them and you got defensive. And so that was a really interesting study because it suggests sometimes, you know, we talk about bring your whole self to work. But mm -hmm. there are some type of types of identities that if you bring them you to work, are just gonna, wraps. <laughs> yeah, they're just going to clog up the environment, make it right. kind of conflictual or toxic and also harm learning. And so that's a type of identity where it might actually hurt more than it helps. And that's mm -hmm. what the research suggests is when people are really committed to these and they don't want to believe anything from the other side. And so therefore, even when you that person presents them with evidence, they they don't learn it. Or sometimes the research online, if you follow people from, you know, kind of political leaders from the opposite party, if anything, the research suggests it kind of tends to have a backfire effect that you actually even become can become more entrenched in your beliefs. Mm. Yeah, so I think what I'm hearing is it's a bad idea to try and use data in studies <laughs> to convince somebody else. And I think something that I've personally been trying to work through, and I'm sure a lot of people have felt this way through the past five years or so, the political uh, political um, climate, is you know I, I personally think that the reason why we are in such trouble is because we never did talk we were always taught to never talk about politics religion sex money yeah. and those are the four things that are so deeply intrinsic in who we are and uh, because we never talked about it we never really understood but I also think that again the backfire you know like in in a perfect world yeah. we'd be able to have meaningful respectful conversations but in some cases it just doesn't it it doesn't make sense to bring it up at thanksgiving you know yeah. um in some cases to keep the peace and i wonder if your your data supports that or suggests another way yeah so i will say the thanksgiving piece is true um, as the united states has gotten more polarized most of the polarization is not due to increased love for your own party Almost mm -hmm. all of it is driven by increased hate towards the out group. Mm -hmm. And so because of that environment that we're in, it's it's really hard. And so this trickles over to Thanksgiving. So there were some studies on this. And what they find is that if you go to, you know, a Thanksgiving dinner with family who are in the opposite political party as you, um, you cut out a dinner like 20 to 30 minutes shorter than you would otherwise um, because you don't want to deal with that. And it's so stressful for people um, that it's not fun. And so it's harming families. There's no question about this. And, and the other thing, though, of course, is that it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, you can pick your spots. There's cases of you can often tell, and I, I find this when I'm on social media, there's some people who are open-minded. You know, they ask questions. They want to understand something deeper. And they might not believe, agree with you, but at least they want to hear your perspective. Um, and if you do that to people, they're going to be more open with you. If you show you're genuinely curious and understanding where they're coming from, then you have a chance to potentially also to influence them. Um, but if you signal right away that, or when I'm dealing with people, they're signaling right away that they're like very close-minded and rigid and aggressive about this. I often just won't bother. Like it's not mm -hmm. worth my time to argue with someone who's just there because uh, essentially they're a troll. So you can use the one rule from the internet, you know, that's been around with us forever is don't feed the trolls. If you get a clear signal that someone just is trying to troll you or, or whatever, um, and they're not open-minded, then don't waste your time. It's just going to be stressful and it's probably going to create, if anything, more conflict in your relationship. But for most people, there's an opportunity to bridge gaps of understanding and, 
and share empathy and try to understand them and maybe convince them that you probably won't convince them all of their beliefs are wrong, but you might nudge them on some key ones. And so I think it's genuinely still healthier to keep those relationships open and the conversations open in the hope that if someone like if you have a family member who's going down a conspiracy theory rabbit hole, um, you don't want them to get too isolated. You want them to have some connections back to reality so that when they're ready to be open minded about something that they have someone they can talk to and they don't feel like they have to keep doubling down on that belief. Right. Which is what those conspiracy theorists did. Maybe if they had felt they had an off ramp back into regular society, it would have been easier for them to do that. Mm. So what do you know that you wish other people could know? Um, I, I think so. The the way that our book was described to me by by someone I sent it to and did a review of it was very much like um, like in the Matrix where you have the blue pill or the red pill. And once you have the red pill, you kind of see the whole world a different way and you can't unsee it. And mm-hmm. so I think the key lesson of our book and people who've read it kind of communicate this to me is if they weren't thinking about identity before and how groups and norms work. Um, after reading the book, they understand it. And they kind of see the world in a whole new way. And they can't. They tell me they can't unsee it after after they've read the book. So I think that that's one of the things to that any competent leader, especially someone interested in cultural change, if you don't understand how groups and identity and norms work, it's going to be really, really hard to change culture um, unless mm. you're just like a total natural. Um, and so I think our group is most useful for those people who are trying to create a culture that is healthy, that values dissent, that values difference, that is inclusive, um, and, and that, you know, gives you the tools to be an effective leader in an environment like that. I have to thank you because since I discovered your work, I have had countless discussions, meaningful discussions with friends over social identities and how <laughs> impactful it is, how embedded it is in, in our culture and our decision making. And you're right, you can't unsee it. Um, and for that, I'm really grateful for just having, you know, something so interesting and so um, relevant for us to talk to, especially now. Um, how can people find you? Uh, thanks, Elson, for the compliment, first of all. Um, I will say the place to find us is uh, our book website, which is powerofus.online. On, so powerofus, all one word, all lowercase, dot online. And there we have a summary of the book, summary of each of the chapters, uh, links to buy the book. And we have a newsletter that people can follow that's free, uh, where every week we kind of break down something in the news and try to make sense of it for people and link to new studies that are happening if you're interested in kind of like learning more. And the whole framing around the book and the newsletter is uh, it's for people who want to get smarter about groups or people who want to build smarter groups. And so through that, our contact information is there, all our social media information is there. And we're happy to hear from anybody who finds this work interesting. Well, thank you, Dr. J. So great to have you on. This was so fascinating. Isn't that stinky shirt experiment so crazy? Doesn't it make you question how strongly you feel for and against people and why it's that way? I love this chat and would love to hear more about where you have noticed that you might have been influenced by the social groups where you belong. As I said at the beginning, you won't be able to unlearn this. And if you'd like to read The Power of Us, which is absolutely fascinating, or connect with Dr. J. Van Babel, Dr. J. Van Babel. I need to say that 10 times fast. I've linked everything in the show notes. I've also linked my info in the show notes because I am dying to hear from you too. Send me a DM, send this to your friends. Tell me what you think about it. Tell me what you learned. Tell me what you didn't agree with. Tell me what you want to push back on. 
I want to hear it all. But sign up for my emails at allisonhair.com. And hey, I'm glad you belong here with me, at least for this time. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.